0: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Football, the podcast where football meets politics. I'm Dr. Francesco Belcastro, one of your co-hosts, and here with me is my co-host, Dr. Guy Burton.
1: Hello, how are you? Hi, how are you? Oh, dear. Okay, hi. (laughs) Sorry. I cut cut (laughs) across you. Anyway, I'm good. And yourself?
0: I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm super excited about today's episode,
1: Guy. Yeah, why? What are we talking about today? We're
0: talking about the politics of football in East Asia. Okay. It's a big one. It's a big one. So we're going to be talking about um, China. Mm-hmm. and the Super League. We're going to talk about the politics of football in Japan and Korea. Mm-hmm. And if we have a bit of time, we're going to talk about Chelsea Football Club, I understand as well.
1: Yes, this is because the person we're speaking to today, you want to do the introductions?
0: Yes, the reason why we're going to be talking about all these things and about Chelsea Football Club is that we have a great expert, um, a great friend of our podcast, uh, Professor Seung Wam Lee, uh, professor Lee is a professor in the Department of Management at the University of Akron at the College of Business. His research lies at the intersection between sport and business strategy. He's published widely on a lot of the topics that we mentioned, but also he is a big football fan. So maybe we can start it uh, from there. Hello, Bam. how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? I'm good. I'm good. So I was wondering whether you would you, you want to start with Chelsea and then we we talk about the rest, or, or where do we want to start this chat from?
1: Yes, I mean, how? Why? <laughs> Why Chelsea?
2: <laughs> Normally, I, I I love to talk about my football club, but probably not this season. As of right now, we are not really doing <laughs> great. So uh, I can certainly talk about you know Chelsea football club and my fanship for non-stop thirty minutes for this podcast, but probably uh, not this time.
1: Fair enough. All okay, right. then well...
0: we'll have to arrange a new episode for 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 that. <laughs> we'll we'll invite a couple of our friends who are Chelsea fans as well. Mm. Okay, then maybe we can we can start from another topic. I mean, an obvious one and one on which you have um, a lot of expertise is the issue of the Chinese uh, expansion uh, in, in the game, the sort of push that China had uh, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, now, uh, towards building a, a league that. In the view of many people, it resembles a bit what, what Saudi Arabia is doing now. Uh, could you tell us a bit about how that happened? Um, what was the status of the game in China before? And, and how is it that we find ourselves um, suddenly with a sort of boom of, of football in China, would at least look to outside as, as a big boom of football in China? I, I believe it is very relevant to discuss the birth of Chinese Super League as
2: it is directly or indirectly reflecting... Uh, I guess depending on how you look at it the pictures of what the state of the game was in China in the past
0: mm-hmm.
2: back in 2014 so it's almost 10 years ago right uh the the Chinese state council announced a nationwide plan that promotes the sports industry and overall sports consumption and the part of this plan is is transforming of Chinese Domestic Football League. Prior to Chinese Super League, it's called Zia A. That was the highest tier of professional football in China. And that was between 1994 and 2003. So we talk about pre-Chinese Super League that started in 2004. So again, it was 1994 where China created a professional football league. It, It may sound not that interesting, especially when we compare the decades of history of European football leagues. However, from an East Asian football perspective, I, I think it is interesting to mention that even J League, for example, uh, considered the most developed domestic league in in Asia. Uh, for some experts, officially kicked off its first season with ten club in 1993. Mm-hmm. So in China, football federation's effort to create the league has been always there. Uh, it's not something that came out of nowhere within the last 10 years or so. So we have to recognize the football history uh, in China,
1: mm-hmm. though it is short. One thing you mentioned is that this this... This was a decision taken in 2014 by you know the the higher council. But two years before that, we had uh, sort of the rise of Xi Jinping, you know, the current Chinese president. And and some people sort of attribute you know his rise, his presence uh, to this um, movement to make China a more a greater football power. Because I believe he had some uh, interest in the game. Would that be correct?
2: Absolutely. I I think it is no secret at all that. President Xi Jinping is a fan of football. And, and some of our listeners may remember this very iconic selfie, him mm-hmm. with Sergio Aguero back in 2015 at Etihad Stadium, who at that time played for Manchester City. And I, I still remember there was a newspaper article from BBC newspaper uh, and its title actually reads that selfie of the year mm-hmm. uh, and question marks, Sergio Aguero, the PM and the Chinese President Xi Jinping. So apparently, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, according to the newspaper article, uh, you know, met a former Manchester City player uh, Sun Jihai. There is absolutely the individual level of interest in the game of a football, but certainly his personal interest in football provides the strategic opportunities. And I guess that is the the Manchester City Club. Manchester City Football Club serves as a diplomatic war between China and and, and England. Mm. And I I think what is more important is that his public remarks about China's soccer dream Mm -hmm. uh, so as to be the next global football powerhouse really had a ripple effect uh, to uh, Chinese corporations, whether they are state controlled, corporations or privately owned corporations. And when I said the briefly fact, uh, I think of one of the ways to publicly, but yet symbolically and politically demonstrate corporations support to present the see is, you know, European football club acquisition. So mm-hmm. for example, since we are talking about, you know, Manchester city here, uh, this club is owned by Abu Dhabi, United Group, but CITIC, a state-owned firm, one of the China's largest uh, conglomerates, specialized in financial statement, also has one percent of ownership of the club, and and they traditionally have been very active outbound, active in outbound direct investment. And they, at the time, engaged in football ODI given the importance of supporting President Xi's announcement. So we certainly observed many corporations supporting President Xi's remark through European Football Club acquisition.
1: We've had at least a couple of uh, people on the show who've talked about, you know, how actually football is a bit of a bad business decision, right, that you don't make a lot of money out of football. And so the question then really becomes, I mean, why are these companies deciding to invest in in, in football abroad? Is it solely to demonstrate loyalty to, you know, or demonstrate commitment to, to the leadership in China? I mean, are they or do they see it as a real business proposition?
2: Yeah, I, 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 I think that's a great question. I, I think there are you know, a couple of different things here to unpack. In, in general, investment in sports in nature brings attention. Uh, it, it, mm-hmm. it, undoubtedly, it generates positive vibes. But at the same time, you're right, Guy. Uh, there is some sort of a misperception that sports investment will make a quick bucks uh, because it's easy to produce content uh, sports is globally appealing, uh, especially when we talk about the football, it is a great vehicle for, I guess, convergence with entertainment, you know, technology, media, uh, you know, sports and etc. And so uh, there seems to be very, uh, there seems to be, uh, you know, some approach by the Chinese corporations from a financial perspective. At the end of the day, uh, we don't really see you know high return on investment. There is not enough evidence showing high investment leading to high efficiencies. Uh in in, in this case, I guess when it comes to Chinese corporations, uh, you know, financial investment, uh, it, it, it's many politically driven strategies mm. uh to support President Xi's, you know personal remark. So I think it's a really fair question, guy. And, and many other, you know, listeners out there to you know, really question about uh, this this movement, whether or not it is strategic.
0: Yeah, I, I was wondering if I could sort of jump in and ask you something uh, a bit different. So you mentioned the the selfie with uh, with the um, Agüero, but another iconic picture is the one of of the Chinese president with with then FIFA president Seth Blatter uh, that he met on several occasions, I believe. And and I think the idea was that he wanted to bring the World Cup to. Um, to China now, from our point of view, and we're not followers, perhaps so much of the of the Chinese game. This drive towards expansion uh, has slowed down, if not collapsed completely. Um, and this also seems to be reflected in the fact that the, the, there was a, a phase in which there were a lot of, there was a lot of Chinese investment in the in the um, English game. Birmingham City, I think, was one of the clubs uh, in minority quotas in other clubs in the Midlands as well. Is it fair to say that that there's been a sort of change of direction? And and is it then again part of a sort of political change uh, from from the leadership and political change of views? So uh, when we talk about the boom and the boom and
2: bust, I, I, I'm not entirely surprised by that. I, I think it is another example of you know one step forward and two step back scenario that uh, that we have seen uh, quite often in other sectors in the past in China. I do not know if the whole shift. Uh, that you are referring to, uh, Francesco, is necessarily new or surprising to to uh, political leaders in China. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and as some of the listeners may know, the real estate market is going through a lot of, you know, consolidation in in China, and they have no really, you know, major supporters of, financially speaking, uh, of, of Chinese super league there's an even newspaper article even today from Yahoo Finance and there are actually a lot of different newspaper articles talking about uh you know what is going to happen with you know real estate market and its impact on Chinese super League I think the real estate market if, if you look at it it will become an increasingly bifurcated sectors mm-hmm. as some financial experts argue and so, the bigger stronger developers who have a supporter, uh, support from the local government versus smaller you know developers you know market structure through consolidation is not necessarily unheard of or mm-hmm. unorthodox by chinese business so again nothing totally new or anything like this in my mind personally however i think it is pretty pretty clear that for fans uh, in that fan culture there has been over the last past years been completely destroyed. The problem is that unfortunately a lot of Chinese Super League fans have to deal with all the changes. Uh, you know, remember and the league problems like a club you know shutting down, you know, players leaving, are not coming from the fans or the players or the coaching staff or whoever is working or the behind the scene um you know work for the club the problems are stemming from the business leaders, political leaders, who may not understand what it's like to run fan-friendly and community-friendly football club. So uh, I think when it comes to the shift that we are seeing right now, I, I don't think that's something really new or, or surprising because we have seen a lot in different sectors in China in the past. Unfortunately, it, it, it is the fans, who are going to suffer? Who are going to experience this in a tough time because of all the changes coming from the league office or from the parent club as a parent company of the clubs?
0: From an outsider, it seems that the, the Chinese Super League has been quite successful in terms of of getting a higher number of fans, but attending matches and and following the league. So I would assume that now you're going to have a lot of people who are unhappy. Uh, because a product or, or, or a team that they're supporting has been shut down or has, or has been sort of scaled down as an operation. Um, would you say that's, that's the case? Has that, that created some sort of unhappiness, you would say, among funds?
2: You are absolutely correct. And, and if you look at the CSL average
0: attendance per
2: game, uh, even a few years ago, pre-COVID, the CSL probably ranked you know, top 10 in the world. So it is very well attended, uh, the league, probably the best in terms of the number of people at the game uh, in any Asian leagues. Uh, e- even uh, some of the Chinese clubs are traveling for Asian Champions League, mm-hmm. whether it is in Australia or whether it's in Japan or South Korea. Uh, there are a lot of fans because they have all the star players like Oscar and hurt uh, and DJ Drogba even. So mm. uh, they brought a lot of fans from China to uh, Asian Champions League matchup in Korea. I still vividly remember that more than a thousand fans from China just fly to watch the Asian Champions League away games. So you are absolutely right. It, it is very well attended game. Now, uh, after COVID, it's a little bit of a different situation mm. uh, and fans are unhappy. Uh, it's mainly because of some of the misfinancial management uh, of the club, uh, some of the ethical manager issues that uh, the company, parent company, as well as clubs uh, are going through. Uh, that that certainly made fans unhappy.
1: Do you see the uh, situation of the last ten years? You know, sort of the 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 bust as it, the boom and the bust of of the Chinese Super League and. You know the impact this has had on business as well as fans you know is this a is this a unique case study or do or can we see in this something about uh, the state of Chinese politics and the relationship between you know Chinese politics and society more generally
2: so like like I said i'm I'm not entirely surprised by the boom and bust uh because we've been seeing uh like one step forward and two steps back scenario in the past in in different sectors uh in the past in China so I do not necessarily think this situation is totally new or totally different uh, to uh, a lot of political leaders, uh, to a lot of businesses associated with the Chinese Super League. Uh, but still it's uh, it's the fans who, uh, who will uh, suffer the most uh, because of a different shift happening within the league. Uh, their, their team is shutting down their team is relegated to the second division. And we saw the example of Evergrande, Guangzhou, uh, which has been one of the powerhouse uh, in the Chinese Super League. They won the Asian Champions League twice, but they went down to second division uh, because of the mismanagement of the team. So I think overall, if if we look at the society and, and, and the sports and the politics, is there something that's really unique happening to sports? I personally don't believe so, uh, mm-hmm. it, it is happening, whether it's just for you or not, this kind of one step forward and two steps back scenario happened quite frequently uh, in the past in in China, if you look at different sectors and business. Um,
0: I was wondering, Tseng um, Wang, um, whether we could uh, ask you a bit about um, other uh, big powers, powerhouses of, of the Asia Pacific um, region. I know it's very difficult to so sort of generalize uh, but your of expertise is also Jap- football in uh, Japan, Korea and, and Australia. Um, what's the picture there? I mean, uh, from an outsider, uh, we have seen uh, uh, progresses on the pitch from from the national teams, uh, particularly in the case of Japan. But what's happening? What are what are the things that our listeners should be aware of at the moment?
2: Well, this is very interesting question and at the same time, very loaded questions, uh, w- w- which is perfectly fine. I, I love this question. Um, I, I personally believe it is a very important, you know, point of discussion as we talk about, you know, football club ownership. um And and here we focus on APEC vision where we see sports are very interconnected with politics and commercialization inevitably in in past few decades. And so I found this question not only interesting, but also very important. Uh, you know, to uh, policymakers as well as you know, uh, you know, you know, individuals in, in, in academia. I think it is almost impossible for any of us today to really predict you know, what the future of intersection between football and politics in APEC region. Um, had I predicted twenty years ago that you know Carlos Tevez and Didier Drogba and Hulk and Oscar to try to play for the Asian Champions League? Uh, not the UFS Champions League, uh, you know, the Asian Champions League and representing Chinese, you know, clubs so that they would play games against the clubs in Vietnam and Australia. I, I think people would call me crazy, right? Um, and, and, and certainly I did not expect that 20 years ago, but here we are, we, we saw Oscar and Hork play for the Asian Champions League. What What is important is, uh, is that we do you know that there will be continuous, you know, football landscape changes and some might be more profound changes than others. So what I'm saying is that we don't know for sure, but I I don't know if I can necessarily name the clubs, markets or political leaders who we need to look out. And yes, it appears that there was some high level conversation about Russian football union joining Asian football confederation. Uh, mm-hmm. so that some of these clubs can play for the Asian Champions League also uh both right now J League and K League uh as a league uh they had talks internally about switching league structure from spring to fall to fall to spring mm-hmm. so that it can coincide uh, it can be consistent with mm-hmm. European season uh, mm-hmm. since Asian Champions League structure has been changed uh, to September start like UEFA Champions League, I think this is a perfect time to talk about that. And also multi-club ownership model will continue as we see in the Redwood example, as we see the city football group uh, example as and even some Chinese corporations, own one club in Chinese Super League, and also they own one club overseas. So certainly, uh, there are a lot of different things going on in this APEC region. I I think all of these are excellent trends to keep an eye on. I I think, however, I still believe this APEC region is still something that we have to continuously follow. I'm not saying that football... um, from this region will generate some forces that will completely reshape the football industry paradigm profoundly. However, remember we talk about APEC region that includes South Korea, China, Japan primarily, and, and those countries are historically, geopolitically very complicated, and they are geopolitical rivalries. Uh, the mm-hmm. term of geopolitics has not been I guess unfamiliar to many Koreans, uh, whether they follow sports or not. Whether uh, we talk about politics, economy, uh, this is mainly due to Korea's very unique geographic location, where the neighbor in China, Japan, uh, North Korea, and very close to Russia, and then uh, decades of close, uh, you know, political and military relationship with the United States uh, within the Korean Peninsula. So certainly football and geopolitics have been always very much interconnected. And I think looking at this region generates meaningful point of discussion for many. So if I may, uh, le- let me add a few more on APEC football and the politics by talking about first you know, you know J-League situation.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask you about the, because you mentioned the J-League and the, and the K-League and they are seen as, as sort of successful models. Uh, and sometimes kind of in opposition to the to the Chinese super League. So, yeah, I was wondering and... if you could tell us a bit about that, yeah, guys, sorry, yeah, because I was
1: just because my if memory serves me. I mean, my my historic understanding of the K league, a lot of the teams there were very much closely associated with um, particular companies. There was a very close relationship, wasn't there? And a lot of these companies were the large, I wouldn't say they're state companies, but they were quite closely aligned to the state. But I assume that the mem- the ownership model has now changed somewhat.
2: That that is absolutely correct, guys.
1: So to to provide
2: some background information about the K-League club ownership model, the the clubs are run by either conglomerate, like a Samsung Mm -hmm. or Hyundai, or it's a municipal local government. Mm -hmm. Some of the K-League clubs are owned by the corporation. So the name of a particular club uh, include the name of the parent company that owns the team. So for example, Ulsan Hyundai, who um, won the K League last year, is named after the company uh, Hyundai, based in South Korea. Uh, jumbo Hyundai is another uh, another club uh, that is also named after Hyundai. Suwon Samsung is named after the business you know, conglomerate uh, Samsung, based in Korea, mm-hmm. and so forth. So, and and this isn't necessarily unorthodox in APEC region, since you see this unique names uh, like this in other sports like baseball, volleyball, basketball, hockey, and etc. And this is not just Korea, again, uh, it's, it's, you know, Taipei, uh, Taiwan, or, or Japan, uh, some other nations have this kind of a unique uh, ownership model. The another ownership model is a local government operation model. Mm -hmm. So it is somewhat complicated to understand, I guess. But in theory, uh, the local government operation model is a community-owned football clubs. Mm -hmm. And not only that, this model is to allow citizens uh, co-ownership of the club and to generate more sort of like a sense of belonging and community Mm -hmm. integration into the club and to serve as a vehicle to represent club cities or province or region. And all of that is is actually lacking if if you look at the corporation-owned club model. Mm. What's interesting is that, however, in in reality, uh, the local government operation model is managed by the city council. (laughs) And the mayor of the city actually serves as a club chairman. So financially, oh, interesting. financially, one of the main problems is that since there's no large parent company for this kind of club, the local government operation model, model club heavily rely on local government financial support. Mm-hmm. A league doesn't make a big money out of media deals. Uh, it doesn't make big money out of game day revenues uh, because they don't own the stadium. Stadium is owned by the city, not by the club. And, 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 and to provide some context in the K-League, the majority of the revenue for the team actually comes from the parent companies. So in other words, uh, the local government has to make a tough decision as to you know, how much money they have to spend on daily operation, but non-financially, which I think it's even more problematic the mayor will not stay in the office forever, right? Uh, So depending on who the mayor is or or will be and which party that they will represent, the club's fate will be decided. Uh, The club may have someone who is very supportive to the club uh, as a chairman, or mm-hmm. the chairman may be a little bit skeptical about spending local taxpayers' money on the club operation. So due to this structural problems, clubs cannot set long-term plans because they don't know how much money they will be given uh, year after year uh, from the local government. This club, therefore, cannot secure long-term investment. Uh, they cannot develop long-term vision for the club. So this a structural problem will continue to be a issue for many clubs with the local government operation model, especially when the team is performing poorly.
1: So that was the situation with the K-League and the what clubs there face, whether they're owned by conglomerates or uh, municipalities. But you were going to tell us something about uh, the J-League and Japanese investment as well, weren't you?
2: It's a very, very mature market right now. Um, I think a couple of different things here uh, I want to make a comment on. One is like Chinese corporations have been doing, uh, Japanese corporations too have been engaging with foreign football club acquisition efforts, though it's not the same level that Chinese corporations have been doing. So we talk about, you know, uh, Japanese corporations uh, acquired football clubs in, in Cambodia, Singapore. Uh, in, in clubs in Africa as well, in, in, and even in Belgium. Uh, Belgium is a particularly interesting one uh, because S- uh, Sintrusen, uh, guy, let me know if my mm-hmm. pronunciation is incorrect. Uh, Sintruden. Sintruden. Uh, that's the club acquired by a Japanese company, uh, DMM.com back in 2017. And this is a Japan-based e-commerce company uh, currently, if you look at their rosters of the first team, there are more than a half hmm. dozen of Japanese players uh, on the roster. Half of them are actually loan players from J-League. And yeah. mm-hmm. past five years or so, if you look at the talent flow of some of the Japanese players currently playing in Europe, some of them actually started their first European football career in this club. So, yeah. Um, I think this is a really interesting case in that this company actually provide a gateway uh, for Japanese players uh so that they can you know play in in, in, in European football league. I, I don't think that there will be you know several additional more you know Japanese corporation who will uh create another you know gateway for Japanese players, but it, it I will not be surprised. If some other Japanese corporations acquire, you know, European, you know, football club, uh, whether it is, you know, with a financial purpose, financial driven uh, initiative or non-financially uh, driven uh, initiative, J League celebrated 30th anniversary this year. It, it, it is very stable, financially very healthy league. Uh, today they average of almost 18,000 fans per game. In a country where baseball is very strong in a variety of different measures. I, I think when it comes to uh, the intersection uh, of sports and the politics in, in J-League particularly, uh, we will continuously see more local government support to J-League clubs. Uh, right now, all J1 and J2 clubs already have a pretty strong local ties in their franchise. Um, and even last year, a chairman of the league actually emphasized once again on building close ties with their local communities but both the league and the clubs will continuously but yet yeah, strategically emphasize on developing you know local teams identity and so it is safe to assume that there will be continuous support from local government uh, like providing financial resources to its local j league clubs and, and remember, when J-League started back in 1993, the entire ecosystem there heavily relied on corporate partnerships. So Yokohama marinos for example, one of the J-League clubs right now, they actually started from you know, Nissan FC back in 1970s. And we all know Nissan. Nissan is a Japanese multinational automobile you know, manufacturer. And now they are staying away from the team naming right model uh, so that they can bring more local flavor, local connection to their team. So now it is Yokohama Mariners. uh, I'm sorry, Yokohama Mariners. I I think, again, uh, compared to K-League, we talk about K-League a little bit. If if I can share uh, my conversation with GM of the K2 uh, club, the second division mm-hmm. of the K-League. Um, that was a local government operation model club. And he shared the challenges that he faces as a GM of the club, especially when it comes to how to secure financial resources from the local government. What he said was that it is much easier to receive a funding from local government if you are a museum or, or a library you are a football club. Uh, <laughs> it is much easier to come up with convincing argument as to why taxpayers uh, it has to support the local uh support um uh, the museum or, or the library than than, than football club mm. you, you may want to ask you know w- w- why that's the case because it appears that Korea is very you know passionate about football. Like we saw in the World Cup, Asian Cup, or even Asian games, which is going on right now uh, in, in China, Korea versus China, there's a you know, quarterfinal uh match a couple of days ago, uh, drew much uh you know media attention. So it is safe to argue that football and and nationalism is very strong in in, in Korean football. Uh, but there's a difference between football and nationalism versus football and regionalism in Korea. The the idea of regionalism isn't really that strong, Uh, or we can say that it's fairly weak. It is always a nation first, then region. And so nationalism uh, versus regionalism argument, um, because of that, a lot of local clubs uh, it, it is really hard to secure the funding from their local government. So the notion that sports bring, brings the community together, uh, the notion that, uh, that sports creates a civic bonding, the notion that uh, sports generates intangible benefit in a local community, doesn't really get much support in, in reality, mm-hmm. especially when we talk about the football in a regional context. Overall, I, I think we see different contexts in football and the politics. Uh, nations in APEC region, or, 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 although they share similar cultural values, uh, and yet they present very complicated geopolitical ideology. Um, and of course, football is not an exception to that. Uh, each domestic league and uh, national team and football federation tries to position themselves with competitive advantages. And certainly operates in a very different way, which I think there is a great value to uh, dive into more um, if you're a scholar or a policymaker.
1: If we were to ask the type of work that you're currently doing, I mean, are you sort of working in this particular field or other aspects of of your work related to football that our listeners might be, you know, should should look out for?
2: A couple of my colleagues and I are working on a couple of different projects right now. Uh, the first one is about uh, club ownership model. So we talk about here, J-League examples, you know, K-League examples. But we also are very interested in you know, what is happening outside of the APEC region. Uh, we see a uh, multi-club ownership model uh, very clearly. Um, that's not just about in, in European football context. Uh, it covers a number of different clubs uh, globally, um, so we are researching right now, you know, how to, uh, you know, come up with a, you know, research questions to unpack in different club, you know, ownership model. The another one is uh, looking at the global talent flow. So mm-hmm. we, we talk about, of course, you know, talent migration. Um, but at the same time in a more uh, structured way so if you think about uh you know how red bull is you know sending their talent uh between you know george Brook in austria and and life germany uh it's not just about the players it looks like it involves you know, uh, the coaching staff mm-hmm. uh, technical directors and some other workforce working behind the scene So we are interested in some of those global talent flow, whether it is from within the Europe or from Europe to Asia or or reverse, we are interested in that kind of a flow. So a couple of different projects are underway right now, which I am very excited about.
0: These are both really, really relevant to what we are interested in. So we'll let you go now. Uh, Well, thank you very much. But you have to promise that you're going to come back later on and tell us uh, a bit about these projects in in the next episode. Do, do we have that promise?
2: More than happy to talk about that project, and I will hopefully uh, talk more about the Chelsea Football Club and how great we are in the English Premier League. Please so <laughs> please, please call me back.
0: <laughs> we'll definitely do that. Well, thank you very much. We've covered so much ground from China to Korea to to Japan. It's been really, really. Uh, uh, invaluable and, it's, and we've learned so much and I, I'm, I'm really grateful thank you very much
1: no, Thank uh, you for
0: joining us. Thanks for your invitation and thank you very much. Uh, is there something else we need to remind uh, listeners?
1: Yes, I, I suppose we need to just remind listeners that um, if you've got this far, it, it's, it's wonderful but we also would really encourage and invite you to write a review, to subscribe uh, to share the podcast and keep an eye out for us and to just keep listening. And if you have ideas as well of topics of that you would like to see discussed and explored, potential guests that we should reach out to, we'd be very interested to hear from you. Because obviously, we have a lot of ideas of stuff that we want to do, as you've just heard, we've, we've mentioned to Simbum that we'd like to have him back. But it would also be great to try and generate a little bit of um, listener content as well. So with that in mind, um, I think, well, I'll hand back to you, Francesco.
0: Well, I think we can close the episode. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you, Sengwan, so much for joining us, and and we'll we'll uh, listen. We'll speak to our listeners next week.